This week, we're not talking about a case from our usual area. We're going out west to cover a disappearance with ties to human trafficking. And one of the reasons I'm covering this case is that there are a lot of misconceptions about human trafficking. I mean, we've all seen the posts on social media. I was at the mall and this man asked me a weird question and then I saw him near my car in the parking lot. I was almost trafficked. No, you weren't almost trafficked. You might have had your purse stolen or been carjacked or mugged, but actual human trafficking, where men, women, and children are put to work against their will, that's far more likely to be connected to someone you know or someone you think you know. There are multiple risk factors for being trafficked. If you are excessively using or abusing drugs or alcohol, if you are struggling with addiction, if you come from an unsafe or unstable home, such as a place where the adults, they struggle with addiction, or if there is domestic violence in the home, if you're in foster care, people living in these situations, people who have issues in their lives leading to instability, unpredictability, and unsafe situations, these are the people most likely to be trafficked, not middle-class women frequenting a well-traveled suburban mall or grocery store. And to understand how Kelsey Emily Collins was trafficked, how she ended up in a dangerous situation while still in close contact with friends and family, while still attending school, while still sleeping in her own bed at night, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. So come with me to the day that Emily Collins was born, back in April of 1991. Kelsey Emily Collins did not have an easy go of things. She was born with a severe case of Hirsch-Sprung's disease. This disease causes problems with the digestive tract. She was in and out of the hospital for most of her young life, with her worried mother attending to her and trying to juggle her own work and older children. Kelsey would have multiple surgeries to address her health issues. Her father, who struggled with alcoholism, was not a help and her parents divorced when she was two years old. About a year after the divorce, her mother remarried. But this new husband, he was abusive, not just to Emily's mother, Sarah, but to Emily and her siblings. When Emily was six years old, she started having seizures. And these seizures, they persisted until her mother, who worked full-time and had four children, was able to get away from her husband. This was no small feat. Sarah ended up waking the children in the small hours of the night and sneaking away to a safe house. Eventually, Sarah Collins would settle with her kids on the West Coast. Still fearful of her abusive soon-to-be ex-husband, they lived in transitional housing as they waited for new identities to come forward. Emily was renamed Kelsey, but she still wanted to be called Emily. And I know it's confusing, but from here forward, I've opted to use Kelsey, as that's what she's listed as legally. Or if you want to Google her name to learn more about the case, Kelsey Emily Collins. When Kelsey was eight years old, the family settled in Washington. In the new home, Sarah's oldest two children confessed to their mother that her former husband had repeatedly sexually assaulted them, an accusation that led to him being arrested, charged, and tried. He would receive a much-deserved prison sentence for his abuse of the children. Kelsey, who is still in grade school and struggling with physical health issues and learning disabilities, she is both a domestic violence survivor and a witness to repeated sexual abuse. 
It seems like Kelsey struggled to survive from the day she was born, and her life never seemed to get any easier. While their abuser being sent to prison for his crimes was helpful, it didn't mean that Sarah and her children had magically healed from their trauma. Sarah would say that one of her daughters struggled with alcoholism, and another turned to marijuana at a young age. And the baby of the family, a boy? He had separation anxiety and school avoidance. Sarah did her best to help the kids heal, sending them to counselors and therapists, getting medication for them as appropriate, but you know there is no quick and easy fix. Repairing that sort of trauma is a long and complex process. Growing up, Kelsey struggled with emotional, physical, and educational issues. She received special education services in school to support her academically, and she received speech therapy because she had a significant hearing impairment. I can't say if she was born with the hearing issue or if that stemmed from the abuse that she endured at the hands of her stepfather, but Kelsey is learning far below grade level and struggling to reach academic milestones. School records showed that by 10th grade, Emily was doing math at the 3rd grade level and could barely read at a 5th grade level. And unfortunately, her troubles did not lessen as she grew up. When Kelsey was 11, she told her mother that a middle school age boy assaulted her, but the family was unable to press charges against him, which is so frustrating. By age 12, Kelsey was sexually active and skipping school. She was also drinking alcohol and using illicit drugs. While Sarah was doing the best she could to provide for and protect her kids, Kelsey was slipping away. At age 13, Kelsey stole her neighbor's truck and police were notified, which put her in the juvenile justice system. She also stole her mother's car, skipped school, ran away from home, and started dating boys who were five or more years her senior, meaning that she was a child and dating adult men. And dating's a tough word to use there. She was in one-sided relationships with adult men. Children can't consent. In 2007, when Kelsey was 15 or 16, she met someone who would change her life, but not in the way that anyone hoped. He bought her flowers and took her to dinner, a real gentleman. But he also got Kelsey to sell drugs for him. Despite working as a small-time dealer for her boyfriend, when she was 16, she'd stayed out of legal trouble for a full year, which was great news for her trip through the juvenile justice system. As a side note, there is not a lot of information on this drug-peddling gentlemanly boyfriend. He, too, could have been a minor when this was going on. When Kelsey was 16 and a half, her boyfriend told her there were ways to make more money, better money than selling drugs. Kelsey would later say, I couldn't believe he was asking me to be a whore, and the next thing I knew, I was. The connection forged between a pimp and an underage victim is so unique, it has a name. It's called a trauma bond. It is a tragic combination of violence, but also protection from other sex workers and other pimps. It creates a bizarre and troubling dynamic where the young woman begins to see her pimp as giving life simply by not taking it. This seems to be what occurred between Kelsey and her drug-slinging boyfriend. From October to December of 2007, Kelsey was picked up by police five or six times for solicitation. Using a fake name and age, she walked the streets as Lady Dollars by night and attended classes at Mariner High School during the day. 
Kelsey served a few stints in juvenile detention and once in court-ordered rehab. Soon, her boyfriend introduced her to a relative of his, Donico Tyrell Johnson, a man in his mid-30s, twice Kelsey's age. With Johnson in the picture, Kelsey's life changed dramatically. Sarah noticed bruises on her daughter, but Kelsey shrugged them off as her being clumsy. Sarah had no idea what her daughter was up to when she ran away for days at a time. When Sarah discovered that Kelsey was performing sex work, she was devastated. I missed all the signs, she said. I totally missed the fact that she was being coerced, manipulated, and forced. Sarah wanted her daughter to stop, to stay at home, and to be safe. And she didn't understand that sex trafficking isn't a lifestyle you just walk away from. Listeners, did you know that it takes an average of four tries for an adult woman with a fully functioning brain to leave a domestic violence situation? How many more times does it take a teenager with disabilities, such as Kelsey, to do the same thing? At this point, Sarah didn't know what to do. She was scared for her daughter, but her daughter was just as afraid of her boyfriend slash pimp. In early 2008, Johnson, along with another pimp, a woman named Lisa Miles, drove Kelsey to Portland, Oregon. They had Kelsey call her mother when they arrived. Kelsey told her she was visiting friends for the weekend up in Olympia, Washington, when in reality, they were planning on selling the 16-year-old on the streets of Portland. Donico Johnson bought her food, lingerie, and condoms, and in return, Kelsey gave him the more than $1,000 a night that she earned on the streets. It didn't take long for Kelsey to be arrested for prostitution. However, the cop that booked her was Detective Sergeant Doug Justice, head of Portland's Trafficking Task Force. He talked to Kelsey. He explained that she was a victim and that he wanted to help her. He worked with her patiently. He got her assigned to rehabilitation instead of jail. Oregon was treating underage sex workers as victims and getting them help to break the cycle they found themselves trapped in. The detective's patience with Kelsey paid off. It took some time for her to feel comfortable with him, but eventually, she told Justice the whole horrible story. That she was from Washington. That pimps and other sex workers beat her. That she was a child, just 16 years old. Kelsey showed him the scar on her hand where a rival had slashed her with a box cutter. A call was made to Sarah Collins, who raced to Portland to pick up her girl. And there is a technical term for what was happening to Kelsey, domestic minor sex trafficking, or DMST. It would take several weeks, but Donico Tyrell Johnson and Lisa Miles, the pimps who trafficked Kelsey, were arrested for interstate trafficking of a minor and sent to jail while they awaited trial. Kelsey agreed to testify against them, but she told both her mother and the police that she was frightened. Remember, Kelsey is learning disabled and has physical challenges. She's operating on a third to fifth grade reading level. And while Kelsey lived at home and attended rehabilitation, someone got hold of her and put her back out on the street where she was once again working nights as Lady Dollars. With a trial date looming, Johnson's cousins tracked Kelsey down and threatened her with physical violence if she testified. Sarah Collins knew that her daughter was scared. Sarah said that Kelsey sat outside the courtroom in the car and cried. 
She could have run at that point. She wasn't in handcuffs. She didn't, though. She sat there and cried on my shoulder and said, Mommy, I am scared. Kelsey testified in front of the grand jury in Portland in April of 2009, and Donico Tyrell Johnson was indicted for interstate sex trafficking of a minor. Portland prosecutors told Sarah that Kelsey, quote, wasn't in too much danger now that Johnson was behind bars awaiting trial. Sarah attempted to get her daughter, who was still in high school, counseling to get her through the process of testifying, but then Kelsey turned 18 and was no longer eligible for the services afforded to underage victims. Bureaucracy won out over the needs of the victim, and Kelsey, whose mother was doing her best to help her daughter but couldn't afford private therapy, continued to work the streets as Lady Dollars. On May 9, 2009, just over a week after Kelsey's birthday, as federal prosecutors planned the trial against Johnson and Miles, Kelsey announced that she had a new boyfriend, a man who lived in Seattle. And on Sunday the 9th, Kelsey left the family home in Everett, planning on taking either the Sound Transit 510 or Metro 101-358 into Seattle. But she never arrived at her boyfriend's place. Kelsey left the house with only her cell phone, MP3 player, a hairbrush, and a few dollars for bus fare stored in a small purse. She did not pack any personal belongings, nor did she bring extra cash. The morning of May 10th, Sarah realized that Kelsey hadn't returned home. She called the boyfriend, but he said Kelsey never arrived. Kelsey's phone? It went straight to voicemail. After a few days, Sarah reported Kelsey missing to police. But now that Kelsey is 18, police are less interested in looking for her. She's an adult. She's allowed to go missing if she wants. And I find this incredibly frustrating considering Kelsey's developmental issues and her history with the law and the upcoming trial. You'd think they would be more interested in searching for her. While Sarah hung missing persons flyers around the city, the prosecutors handling the case against Johnson and Miles asked her to stop putting up flyers. They were afraid the case would fall apart if the defense knew Kelsey was gone. And while you and I know that Kelsey was frightened and had been threatened by Johnson's cousins, she'd never told prosecutors about that incident, so she was never offered any type of witness protection. With a trial date looming and no sign of Kelsey, law enforcement in Washington and Oregon suddenly took an interest in her case and started looking for her. Unfortunately, their efforts were too little, too late. They didn't really start looking for her until months after she was last seen. They discovered that her phone started going to voicemail starting at 8 p.m. on May 9th, only two and a half hours after she left her home en route to the boyfriend's place. Even though no one could get in contact with Collins after 8 p.m. that day, her phone continued emitting signals in the Seattle area for the next two weeks, as if someone were periodically powering up the phone. When interviewed by police, Kelsey's boyfriend claimed that she never arrived in Seattle. He hadn't seen her. Police initially focused most of their attention on this man because he wasn't only Kelsey's romantic partner, he was potentially the last person to see her alive, an allegation he denied. So they took a long look at Kelsey's boyfriend and her family. Then other avenues were investigated. Kelsey's family has always maintained that Johnson's family members or associates were to blame. Her mother, Sarah, states that Kelsey's first boyfriend, the man who tricked her into prostitution in the first place, was never considered a suspect. 
Five months after Emily was last seen, the charges against Donico Tyrell Johnson and Lisa Miles were dropped, and the search for Kelsey ground to a halt. According to Sarah, the investigation didn't actually start until the trial was nearing, which meant potential evidence and witness testimony was lost or forgotten. Kelsey's sisters say they felt Kelsey was used by prosecutors and discarded when she was no longer helpful to their case. Law enforcement took a different view. They said Collins was not offered protection because she didn't request it. Kelsey never told anyone outside of her family that she'd been threatened by Johnson's relatives. Also, it wasn't unusual for Kelsey to vanish for a few days when she was working, so when she didn't immediately return home, that wasn't out of the ordinary for her. And Sarah, although she claimed she knew something was wrong right away, she didn't report her daughter as missing for almost a week, which meant that the first vital 48 hours were lost entirely. As for the focus on her family and boyfriend, law enforcement states that they start with the obvious suspects first. And this makes sense in most cases, but this, this was not most cases. While they admit that it is possible, even probable, that Kelsey met with foul play due to her role in the trial against Johnson, it is equally possible that someone she knew, such as a customer or even a random predator, is to blame for her disappearance. In fact, there isn't even evidence a crime was committed. But whatever happened, an 18-year-old girl, the daughter of a loving mother and sister to three siblings, vanished completely, never to be seen again. With the case against Miles and Johnson dropped, they might have been released from custody. Thankfully, both were indicted again almost immediately for the same crime. Except this time, the girl they were charged with trafficking was even younger than Kelsey. I believe this girl was 14 or 15. She became the star witness at trial. Unlike Kelsey, she was offered protection in exchange for her testimony, and her time on the stand put Johnson and Miles in federal prison, at least for a few years. The fact that these two predators were off the streets afforded little comfort to the Collins family, who felt that Kelsey was used by the same system that she had once been in trouble with. They understandably resented that this victim was offered protection when Kelsey wasn't. More than a decade has passed, and still, Kelsey Emily Collins remains missing. Sarah Collins works tirelessly to educate the public on the reality of sex trafficking, which some describe as modern-day slavery. Sarah works hard to keep her daughter's case in the spotlight. Before we wrap up, I want to share some statistics on sex trafficking. According to Detective Justice, trafficking victims come from all socioeconomic and racial backgrounds. But that's not to say that the victims don't have similarities with one another. Justice says that almost all children he encounters who are trafficked come from single-parent households, have low self-esteem, do poorly in school, and suffer from addiction issues and or cognitive issues. And listeners, it's no surprise that pimps seek out children that are easy to manipulate. Detective Justice explains that sexually trafficked minors are like domestic violence victims on steroids. These children cannot just leave their situation as leaving puts them, and sometimes their families, in danger. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, the majority of children who are sex trafficked are working in pimp-controlled prostitution. While they engage in sex work, they may also sleep each night in their homes, and more than half of these children attend school regularly. The biggest risk factors for being trafficked as a youth are homelessness and chronic running away. 
27% of reported sex trafficking cases were familial trafficking with a parent or relative exploiting the child. And 99% of sex trafficking victims are women and girls. In confirmed sex trafficking court cases, the victims are 20% white, 35% black, 21% Hispanic, 4% Asian, 5% other, and 16% non-specified. As of this writing, Donico Tyrell Johnson is about halfway through a 15-year sentence that he's serving in a Massachusetts prison on another charge of sex trafficking. Kelsey Emily Collins was last seen on May 9, 2009. She would be 29 years old today. At the time of her disappearance, she stood about 5'6 with an average build. Kelsey has light brown hair and green eyes. She is multiracial, of African-American, Caucasian, and Native American descent. At the time of her disappearance, her hair was chin-length. Collins has a 2-3 to three inch surgical scar on her lower ribcage, a surgical scar across her lower abdomen, and a 2-inch scar across her left hand and index finger. Her ears are pierced, and the right side of her nose is pierced. She may go by her middle name, which is Emily. If you have information regarding the disappearance of Kelsey Emily Collins, please contact the Everett Police Department at 425-257-8400. Also, the National Human Trafficking Hotline is confidential, toll-free, and available 24-7 in more than 200 languages. Call 1-888-373-7888. You can also go to humantraffickinghotline.org. This episode was researched by Reddit user Quirky Motor. Audio editing by Cesare Gray of Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Remember that you can find additional content both on Patreon at patreon.com slash already gone and on my new YouTube channel, which is under my name, Nina Instead. I appreciate you listening and please be safe.